Just looking at the last couple of verses in that chapter together as we begin to consider the topic of the last two chapters of the confession, which are, as you'll see on the bulletin there, there are two chapters, really three different subjects that we're dealing with, all under the main category of eschatology. Uh, so we're thinking of the state of man after death, the resurrection from the dead, and then the last judgment. Uh, and so all of those three are dealing with the doctrine of eschatology, which means, what does eschatology mean? Anybody? What does eschatology mean? The end times, yeah, the end times, the study of the last things, the study of the end times. Uh, and so we are studying the end times tonight as we consider the state of man after death, the resurrection from the dead, and then the last judgment. And as we prepare to do that, let's read Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate, or our humble state, into his glory. Sorry. Will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So a number of things there as we prepare to, to think about the doctrine of eschatology. First of all, notice Paul's heart toward the unbelieving. He says, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping. So as Paul, we'll see in a moment, as he looks forward to the last day when Christ returns, there's a sense in which it causes Paul to weep when he thinks about the destruction that awaits the unbeliever. And so I think that sets a tone for us tonight as we think about the doctrine of eschatology. It's far more than merely an intellectual activity. We are thinking about the eternal reality of souls, both unbelieving and believing. And as Paul thinks about the eternal reality of an unbelieving soul, he weeps. But at the same time, when he thinks about the eternal reality of the believing soul, he rejoices. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he's going to transform our bodies into the, the state of his glory. We're going to be like him. And so on the one hand, Paul weeps for those who are lost when he thinks about the end times. On the other hand, he rejoices for the reality of what that means for the believer. And so as we study the doctrine of eschatology, um, the, the study of the last things, Many of you are probably aware that it comes with a lot of dispute in, uh, in many contexts when we talk about the last things. Uh, what are the specific events that are going to take place? When will those things take place? What's the order of those things? Uh, how are they going to take place? Is there going to be a literal millennial reign on the earth or not? Is there going to be a rapture or not? Uh, lots of different questions um, that a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times only end up in uh, heated debate and don't end up being all that edifying. The reality is the Scripture's teaching uh, and the Confession's teaching tonight 
is very simple, and there, and there is a lot of common ground that every believer can grab onto and can stand on together, even if we might differ on some of the finer points of eschatology. We can all agree with what Paul has just said in Philippians chapter 3. And so at the, at the very heart of eschatology is this idea that we are eagerly awaiting a final day, a day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, and a day in which we will be radically transformed into his glory, ushering in an eternity of joy in his presence. Uh, that is what every believer anticipates and rejoices in. And so uh, I won't approach tonight from the perspective of polemics, though uh, certainly we have our convictions in terms of what the last times look like uh, and, um, and what, they, what they won't look like according to our understanding of Scripture. But I will attempt to, to keep it simple as the confession does and set our, ho- our hearts and our minds on what is, what is very clear regarding the hope of the believer. And so first of all then, the confession deals with the matter of the state of man after death. Uh, and so another way, another way of describing this, another term that's used for the state of man after death is the intermediate state. Anybody familiar with that terminology, intermediate state? So the, the term intermediate state, it, it obviously implies a temporary condition in between two different things. Uh, and so the idea is, that when we die, there is a period of time between two events, between our death and the return of Christ. Uh, And when we die, we know that our bodies are buried in the grave. Then the question is, what happens to us? Our bodies are there, but is that us? Are we buried in the grave? Is that that the end of us until Christ returns? Or what happens to us between the time of our death and the time of Christ's return? Uh, And that is the question of the intermediate state And that's what the first paragraph of the confession is explaining. And so we'll look at that, just the first uh, two sentences there of the first paragraph describing the intermediate state. The bodies of men after death return to dust and undergo corruption. However, their souls, which neither die nor sleep, which have an immortal uh, subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. So there's, uh, on the outline there, you'll notice there is... There are two different distinctions that we need to make when we think about the intermediate state. What happens to us after we die? The first distinction that needs to be made is the distinction of body and soul. Um, So when the scripture speaks about us as human beings, it never suggests that we are only soul and not body. When God created Adam, he formed him out of the dust, but when did Adam become a living, breathing person? when God breathed his breath into him. And so Adam is more than body. He's soul. Uh, And every human being is more than body. We're soul, and we're more than soul. We're body. And so the the natural condition of our creation is to be entirely, entirely human, both body and soul. The separation of body and soul is a very unnatural condition. Uh, which I think most of us today in our, in our generation probably struggle with this less than people may have in, in different times in history, but the Platonic idea that all material is evil and only the spiritual is good is completely foreign to the Scriptures. Material is good if God has created it, and spiritual is good if God has created it, and man was both spirit and body in his creation, and he was good. Uh, and so it is necessary then for for us to be complete the way that God created us to be. It's necessary that we have both body and soul. But at death, this is the very definition of physical death, at death, body and soul are separated. 
The body goes to the ground, is buried, and returns to the dust. Uh, That's the very thing God promised to Adam. If he would eat of the fruit, he would die. And then in Galatians 3.19, we read, uh, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is the returning of our bodies to the dust from which it was created. But what about the soul? Where does the soul go when the body goes into the ground? Ecclesiastes 12, then the, explain, it uses a number of metaphors for death leading up to this verse, and then it says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So the description of death, according to Ecclesiastes, is the body returning to the dust from which it came and the spirit going to God who made it. And so there's a distinction then in terms of the intermediate state between the destination of the body and the destination of the, sh- of the soul. They don't go to the same place. The soul continues to exist in a conscious state while the body returns to the dust from which it came. But it won't always be that way, as I've said, uh, because we weren't created to be merely soul. We were created to be both soul and body. And so we're anticipating a day when the body is reunited to the soul. But before that happens, it's the intermediate state where the soul and body are separated. So that's the first distinction that has to be made, the distinction between body and soul. But then you have the distinction among those souls between righteous souls and wicked souls. And the confession goes on to explain this distinction as well. Uh, Beginning in the third sentence there of the first paragraph, the souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. The scripture acknowledges no other place besides these two for souls separated from their bodies. Just as a quick note, that last sentence, what do you think that's trying to address right there? What error is the last sentence addressing? There's no other place other than paradise and hell for disembodied souls. Purgatory. There's no other option where, where, uh, where the soul can go other than heaven or hell. And so there are two destinations. The distinction then is the destination of the righteous and the destination of the unrighteous. And as you look at the outline there, you'll see there are three primary differences uh, between these two. There is difference in location. So the first point there on the outline under the distinction of righteous and wicked, the first is a distinction in location. The righteous soul goes to paradise immediately to be with Christ. The unrighteous soul is immediately cast into hell. So the the righteous soul immediately goes to be with Christ in paradise. What is a passage that comes to mind when you think of immediately going to be with Christ in paradise on the day that you die? The thief on the cross. Yeah, that's the the main one. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. Uh, There's a number of other passages that we could go to to show as soon as the believer shuts his eyes and breathes his last and his body is separated from his soul, his soul immediately goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of, of his glory. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, I prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. 
It's better for the believer right now in this, in this current condition. Paul is saying, it is better for me to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Obviously, he wrestles with that same thing in Philippians 1 where he says, I'm, I'm torn. I don't know which is best to keep on remaining here and laboring for you in the flesh or to depart and go and be with Christ because that's so much better. And so for the believer, we have the certainty. First of all, we have the obligation to remain on the earth as long as God calls us to be here. Uh, but then secondly, we also have the certainty that when death comes and the moment that we slip out of this world, uh, we will immediately be in the presence of our Savior. So that's the first distinction, uh, whereas the believer is, is cast into hell. First uh, Peter 3.19 shows the, um, the reality of the believer immediately going to hell after death. It speaks of the, the individuals who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So you think way back to the ark, way back to the days of Noah. Noah's preaching the gospel to them. Peter says it was Christ preaching through Noah in those days. Jesus was preaching, by his spirit, was preaching through Noah in the days of the ark. Uh, and, th- and there were many people, except for the eight who were saved, there were many people who were disobedient to the word preached. And Peter says those who were disobedient then are now in prison, uh, meaning hell, the prison of hell. And so the location is different. Believers go immediately to the presence of Christ. Unbelievers, their souls go immediately to prison or to hell. And then secondly, there is a distinction in condition. This is number two there on the outline. The believer's soul is made perfectly holy, beholding the face of God. The unbelieving soul continues to suffer in darkness. So the distinction of being perfectly holy and beholding the presence of God and continuing in sinful corruption in, in the darkness of, of suffering and torment. Um, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man who was wicked and greedy in this life and refused to care for the poor man who begged outside his gate. And then the scene that's, that's described immediately following their death is uh, Lazarus receiving the, the blessing of heaven immediately, and the rich man experiencing the torments of hell. Uh, And so Jesus is making clear there's a distinction in the immediate destination of the departed, both the righteous and the unrighteous, continue to live, and they do so either in the presence of God, having been made perfect. Uh, Hebrews 12, 23 says that the spirits in heaven have been made perfect. And so there's a distinction in condition. And then thirdly, there is a distinction in the expectation. So number three, Waiting for final redemption, the redemption of our bodies. If we're a righteous soul in in the intermediate state, we are waiting for the final redemption of our body. But if we are, if if a person is an unrighteous soul in the intermediate state, he's waiting for the judgment. So on the one hand, you've got the righteous eagerly anticipating final and full redemption of their bodies. On the other hand, you have the only expectation being judgment. Uh, And so there there is a complete distinction in the expectation Again, so even if you think about it, the righteous soul in heaven is, it's in paradise with Christ. That is, that's wonderful. That's the best place we could ever be, is in paradise with Christ. Uh, The righteous soul is made perfectly holy. It's beholding the glory of God. And yet the righteous soul in some way is still incomplete apart from the final redemption of our body. Uh, And so even the righteous souls in the intermediate state in heaven are in a sense longing for something more. 
They're fully satisfied in the presence of Christ, but their redemption isn't yet complete until their bodies are raised and glorified uh, and, and, they, and they are reunited with their redeemed bodies. That's the expectation of the believer in, in the intermediate state. The expectation of the unbeliever is judgment. 2 Peter 2.9 uh, is, is a helpful verse in showing that all that's left for the unbelieving soul in hell in the intermediate state is the expectation of judgment. Second uh, Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the days of judgment, or for the day of judgment. Uh, so he knows how to rescue the godly, but he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Uh, and so some very sobering descriptions by, by way of contrast between the glory of the, of the believing soul in heaven uh, and the agony of the unbelieving soul, even in the intermediate state uh, in hell. But again, it's an intermediate state, which means it's only temporary, and it will come to an end. This, uh, this temporary period of the soul being separated from the body is, is only for a period of time, and it will come to an end at the resurrection of the dead. And so this is the, the second paragraph uh, in the confession, second and third paragraphs of chapter 31. At the last day, those saints who are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed. Furthermore, all the dead shall be raised up with the very same bodies, and none, uh, and none other, although with different qualities. These bodies shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall be raised by the power of Christ to dishonor, the bodies of the just shall be raised by his spirit to honor and be made conformable, conformable or similar uh, to his own glorious body. All right, so the, the time of the resurrection. When, when is the resurrection going to happen? Uh, Noelle shrugs because she's not sure the exact time. Uh, and Jesus says that's a good answer. Uh, we've not been told the time of Christ's return. We've not been told the time of the resurrection. We've only been told that it is certain and it is imminent. Uh, and so at some point, Christ is going to return, and at the return of Christ, he is going to speak forth, and by the power of his voice, he is going to raise every single human being who has ever lived from the grave. Uh, by, the, by the mere speaking of his word, Jesus is going to raise every single individual from the grave uh, so that soul of every individual is reunited to body of every individual. That is the last day. Jesus uses the phrase last day, especially in the Gospel of John. If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the phrase the last day uh, multiple times in reference to the resurrection. He makes clear there is coming a single day in the future when Christ returns uh, and he will call forth the dead out of their graves and uh, will reunite them with their souls. And there is a very different resurrection when we consider the resurrection of the dead with the resurrection of the righteous. Again, just like there's a, a sharp distinction between the intermediate state, there's also a very uh, drastic distinction between the two resurrections of the, of the righteous and the unrighteous. First of all, the unrighteous. Uh, I should probably make the point, the Bible makes very clear that the resurrection will be both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And so there are, there are some ideas out there, some, some who would argue that the, the end of the unrighteous is just a, a ceasing to exist. Uh, they'll, they'll never be raised. They'll, they'll never experience hell. They, they will just cease to exist uh, once they die. 
Jesus makes very clear that, that he will actually raise, by his own voice, he will raise every single person, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, we could go to Acts 24, 15 for that. I won't go there for the sake of time now, but Paul is basically just saying, I'm on trial right now for the hope of the resurrection, he says, because I believe that God will raise, that there is a resurrection both of the wicked and of the righteous. Paul says there is a resurrection for both, for all kinds of people. They will all be raised up from their graves but the resurrection of the dead, uh, the resurrection of the of the unjust. I'm sorry, the resurrection of the unjust will be one of dishonor. Uh, they will be raised to dishonor. What do you think it means for the unjust or the unrighteous to be raised to dishonor? What will that look like on the last day? So imagine the day when Christ returns and by His voice He speaks and the dead rise. But there are two groups of people who rise on that day the righteous and the unrighteous, and and on this side, the unrighteous are raised in dishonor. What do you think that looks like? Well, they died in dishonor, didn't they? To die in dishonor and uh, and corruption is to die in rebellion against the Lord, to die in unbelief, to die in spiritual death, and they won't be raised in a different condition than that. So everyone who dies in unbelief and in the misery of their sin— will also be raised in unbelief and in the misery of their sin. Uh, and so it's not an honorable resurrection. Nothing has changed. Uh, you know, we, we think about, and we'll get there in a moment, we think about hell and the eternality of hell, and we think, um, and rightly so, we're grieved by that reality, but we think certainly it, it must relent at some point, but we forget that the rebellious heart will continue to rebel against its creator throughout the duration of hell. Uh, There's been no change in the core of the individual's heart uh, by virtue of his resurrection. He is raised in the same dishonor uh, with which he was laid down in the ground, which is a heart of rebellion against his creator. And so he's raised to dishonor. Sam Waldron makes an interesting point here too. I was reading his uh, comments on the confession, and he made an interesting point. And so we'll we'll get here in just a second, but he says, if you think about it, when the righteous is raised from the dead— their bodies in some way reflect the perfection of Christ uh, and the righteousness that's been given to them in Christ. And so we read about how the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. There's something physical, there's some manifestation of righteousness even in the physical attributes of our resurrected body. So Sam Waldron's making the point, he says, if you think about the believer, there's something physically distinct about them because of their righteousness. And he says, wouldn't it be appropriate then to think that the resurrection of the unrighteous will be similar, except opposite. Uh, if, the, if the righteous reflect something of the perfection of Christ physically, then wouldn't we expect the unrighteous to, to somehow reflect the corruption of sin outwardly? And so he, he makes the point, maybe when the Bible speaks of the dishonor of the resurrection of the unbeliever, maybe some of it is actually the physical manifestation of the corruption of their heart. You think about the, the, the filth of the heart of the unbeliever, which is all of us apart from Christ. Uh, for we also were like them, Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, hateful, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were just like the unbelieving. So when I say, think about the heart of the wicked unbelieving, I'm saying, think about our heart before Christ. Think about the heart of unbelievers still. And then picture that, whatever that is, being manifested outwardly in the flesh. Uh, maybe that is what a resurrected body of the unrighteous looks like, is what Sam Waldron is saying. Uh, So he says, we must think that the bodies of the doomed will very accurately portray the ugliness and loathsome nature of sin. 
So maybe that's the case. I, I don't know. Uh, may, maybe in some ways the unrighteous physically portray their own unrighteous hearts. But either way, uh, it's certain that the resurrection of the unrighteous is, is, is not the same as, as that of the righteous. It's one of dishonor uh, and shame and contempt. But it is by the power of Christ. I've mentioned that he speaks and he raises the dead. John 5, 28 to 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Uh, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So both the righteous and the unrighteous will be raised by, by God's voice and will be brought into judgment. So that's the resurrection of the unjust. Now we think of the resurrection of the just or the righteous. In contrast with the dishonor of the unrighteous resurrection, the believer is raised to honor. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, again, to think about what it means to be raised in honor is the very opposite of what we've just discussed regarding dishonor. It means that our bodies will be pure. They will be imperishable. They will have no corruptible quality to them. We will be raised uh, with new glorified bodies. And uh, the confession goes on to describe that as a body which is in conformity to Christ's body, which is what we've read from Philippians 3. So it is a resurrection of honor, and especially that honor is manifested in the fact that our bodies are conformed to the very image of Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.21, again, which we read earlier, says, we're waiting for, for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power. So in some way, Christ will exert his power on our physical bodies and will transform them so that they reflect something of his own glory that will be made like his, his own body, the body of his glory. I don't think... Um, I don't think anyone can really know what that means. I think that's the Apostle John's point in 1 John chapter 3 when he says, we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We don't, we don't really know yet what we'll be. The scripture tells us certain things about what we're going to be like. We don't really know what the glorified body is going to be like, John is saying, but we do know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So we don't know all of the details of what a glorified body looks like. We don't know exactly what it means that Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Uh, those are, are things that we'll not discover fully until Christ appears and we finally know what that means. But we do know that we will have our bodies. They will be our bodies. It's not like you're going to look entirely different, unrecognizable in the life to come. It is going to be your body. It's going to be you but it's going to be your body changed and transformed and made glorious by the power of Christ. So we do know that, but beyond that, we're in the land of mystery. And then this resurrection of the righteous will be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. If you think about our redemption, uh, our, the fullness of our salvation, you think about how each person of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. I mentioned this last week in the talk as well. But the Father mapped out, he planned out your salvation in love. The Son came to earth to die for you in love, to accomplish your salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies your salvation. Uh, he, he brings to bear upon your life all of the saving benefits of Christ's death. So how were you regenerated? How were you, how were you made a new creature? By the Spirit of God. How are you sanctified? By the Spirit of God. 
How will you be raised from the dead? By the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will also exert his power upon your body and raise it up on the last day. What about saints who are living at the return of Christ, who, who never die? What about those who are still on the earth, are still breathing, still going about life on the day that Christ returns? What's going to happen to them? Well, the answer is simple. They will never die. They will never experience death. They will be immediately transformed uh, into the state of Christ's glory. That's found in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll be called up to be with Christ and will forever be with the Lord the moment he returns. And then 1 Corinthians 15 talks about in the blink of an eye we will be changed at the return of Christ, at the sound of the trumpet. All right, so that's the, the resurrection of the dead. We're halfway through the confession so far, so uh, we're almost done in theory. The last judgment is what immediately follows the resurrection. Uh, so there's not uh, some, some long period of time between the resurrection of the dead and the judgment. It is, it is a, uh, in a sense, a cause and effect situation. We are raised from the dead and immediately brought into judgment with Christ. And uh, we read about that in paragraphs 1 and 2 of the Confession. I'll read just the first paragraph of chapter 32. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given by the Father. In that day, not only shall the, the apostate angels be judged, but in the same way, all people who have lived on the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ. They shall give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." So first of all, then, how is God going to judge the world? How will he judge the world? It's very clear from the scriptures he will do so through his son. God has appointed a king upon his throne, Jesus Christ. He has raised him from the dead. He has seated him as king of the, of the, of the earth. Uh, and God will judge the world through the one that he has placed on his throne. Acts 17 uh, talks about that in Peter's sermon. He will judge the world through the man, Christ Jesus. And then Jesus says, not even the Father will judge anyone, but he has entrusted the Son with judgment. So the, the way that God will judge the world is through his Son, whom he's placed upon his throne. What about the objects of judgment? Who's going to be judged on the day of judgment? And the confession said, all people, along with all fallen angels. Matthew 16, 27 makes, uh, makes certain that every single person is going to be brought into judgment says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So if you're a woman, you're excused. Just kidding. I'm just making sure you're awake. <laughs> for the Son of Man will come and he's going to repay every man according to his deeds. Every single person. And what's the basis of this judgment? Well, as we just said, according to his deeds. Every person will be judged according to his or her deeds. All of us must give an account of what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought, what we've done with our hands, our eyes, our mouths. 
Everyone will give an account. Of course, for the believer, the account that we give will be a pleading of the merits of Christ. So when we enter into judgment, what that means for the believer is recognizing that if God were to judge me according to my speech, my thoughts, and my actions, then I would be right there with the wicked in their condemnation. But for the righteous to enter into this judgment, the judgment of Christ of all people, for the believer to enter into this judgment is for us to plead the merits of Christ. And so we, in this life, we take refuge by faith in the perfect Son of God. And then when we come uh, into judgment before Christ, we plead nothing other than the blood and the righteousness of Christ. And we say, this is my only hope before the judgment of God. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I have received through faith alone. But the fact still remains that every person will enter into judgment, whether believer or unbeliever, we will all enter into judgment, and we will either stand on the basis of our own deeds, supposed merits, or we will be hidden in the merits of Christ. But, but we should recognize that this is an all-encompassing judgment for every human being. What's the purpose of the judgment? Why has God appointed a day in which he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous? Uh, this is the second paragraph there, the beginning of the paragraph, chapter 32. The purpose of God in appointing this day is the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So there are two primary purposes to the day that has been appointed by God for judgment. The glorification of his mercy on the one hand toward the elect and the glorification of his justice on the other for those who have refused to trust in Christ and have continued in disobedience. So for the believer, the day of judgment, the only thing that we will experience is the grace and mercy of God. So if you look forward to the day of judgment, and you anticipate what is the day of judgment going to be like for me as a Christian? What is that day going to be like? It is going to be a day in which you experience in, in the climax of its expression, the fullness of the grace and the mercy of God in, in the public pardoning and declaration of your forgiveness and righteousness through Christ. Uh, so the only thing that the believer has to expect when it comes to the day of judgment is the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, here's how Pastor James Dom explained it. He said, in the day of judgment, God isn't going to parade our sins and faults and failings before the universe. He isn't going to rub our noses in our sin, as it were, in, in order to shame us. No, our sins are covered in the blood of Christ. He has declared in his word, I will remember their sins no more. Nothing but blessing and reward await those who are trusting in Christ in that day. The opposite is true for the believer. The believer looks forward to judgment and only anticipates mercy and grace. The unbeliever looks forward to the judgment, and only can anticipate justice and judgment and wrath. Uh, there will be no mercy and no grace to be found for the one who refuses Christ in this life. If a person refuses Jesus now, there will be no chance of grace then on the day of judgment. But in either case, whether it is the believer receiving the full expression of God's grace and forgiveness, or the unbeliever receiving the full expression of God's wrath and judgment, 
In either case, God is glorified, and that is his chief motive in the appointed day of judgment, that he would be glorified, whether in the expression and exaltation of his mercy or in the expression and the exaltation of his justice. God will be glorified, and that's why he's appointed the day of judgment. What about the result of judgment? What comes after the judgment? And this is the second half of paragraph 2. For on that day the righteous shall go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. However, the wicked, who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into everlasting or eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the Bible is equally clear about the two destinations that await every, uh, one of the two destinations that await every single human being uh, after the resurrection and after the judgment. There is either, on the one hand, an eternity in the presence of God as resurrected, glorified human beings, or there is an eternity in the presence of God's wrath as resurrected but not glorified, uh, fallen human beings. Both of those are equally certain in the Scriptures. There is, uh, there is not more certainty of heaven in the Scriptures than there is of hell. There is equal certainty to both. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if you heard this, then take it seriously. There is an eternal destination of suffering and fire for those who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an eternal destination of righteousness and joy for those who bow the knee and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible, all throughout, there's some references there on the outline uh, under the result of judgment, eternal torment away from his presence. There's a number of passages there you could go to that talk about the everlasting, the enduring nature of the fires of hell. Uh, there's, there's no way around it. People have tried to get around it throughout church history. They've tried to find a way to say that uh, hell is only temporary, that the, the, the individual will eventually cease to exist and will be annihilated, but the scriptures make no room for that, uh, and, and we should take God at his word as much as it causes us trouble in our own minds and our hearts when we think about things like that, we ultimately have no option but to take God at his word and to believe that he is unwaveringly good and righteous. And if nothing else, then we should walk away from the doctrine of an eternal hell and be extremely grateful that he has rescued us from it. And also, it should help us understand more fully, more in depth, what Jesus did on the cross. So if it, if it is an eternity of suffering for those who refuse him, uh, if that's the due punishment of sin, and if the cross is the source of the full forgiveness of our sin, where that punishment was fully dealt, then what was it that Christ accomplished on the cross other than our eternal hell? Uh, whatever that looked like for him in suffering that we could never enter into, uh, it looked like him enduring the full wrath, the full force of hell for us, for you and for me. And so it is a difficult doctrine, and yet it should lead the heart of the believer to sorrow for the unbelieving and grief and urgency, and at the same time for gratitude to the Lord for what he's done for us. All right, well, let's finish with this last section briefly. 
why is this doctrine important for us today? Why does it matter to you as a Christian that Jesus is one day going to come back, that Jesus is one day going to judge the living and the dead, he's going to raise them all up, uh, and he is going to, to judge the unrighteous and the righteous, and that we will one day spend eternity with him if we are believers or apart from him if we are unbelievers. Why does this make a difference in our lives now? And this is the last paragraph of the confession. Christ wants us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. For this reason, he keeps that day unknown to men in order that they may shake off all carnal security or human self-confidence and always be watchful because they do not know at what hour the Lord will come and so may always be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. I think this paragraph is a fitting way for us to finish uh, the entirety of the confession, not just this chapter, but really the entirety of the confession. So if you remember, very early on in our series through the confession, uh, I quoted R.C. Sproul, and I said um, something along the lines of, theology must always end in doxology. Theology must always lead to doxology. Theology is the study of God, uh, a, studying, a study of, of doctrine, what is true about God, what is true about salvation, what is true about His Word. The study of God must always end in doxology or praise, or worship, or adoration. And I think that's where this confession is, is leaving us. As we consider the return of Christ, we, we cannot walk away from it without having our hearts stirred in some measure to say, Amen, Lord Jesus. Come. Come quickly. That is the response of the human heart that has been redeemed when we consider what's awaiting us in the eternity that is to come. And it will make us, if we, if we think seriously about what's going to happen at the return of Christ, the judgment that's to come for the unbeliever and the eternal joy that awaits the believer, then it will certainly make us more sensitive to sin, more careful to steer clear of it. Uh, and it will certainly comfort us in times of affliction and persecution when we think that a full vindication awaits us. It will make us watchful. We'll want to be faithful with the life, with the time that God has given us when we think that he is certainly returning and that his return is imminent, and it will keep us eagerly longing and waiting for his return. A good study through the New Testament when you have time would be to look at the way that eagerly is used in the New Testament. Do a study of the word eager, uh, eagerly, and you will see that uh, many, many times in the New Testament we are told that the believer is eagerly anticipating the arrival of our Savior eagerly looking for it, waiting for it, longing for it. Good doxology, uh, good theology will lead us to doxology, to praise him, to worship him, to adore him, and to long for him. And I trust that as we continue to live in the reality of his return, that's what Christ will do in our hearts, will increase in us the longing for his return. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we have as believers. We thank you that not one of us who is in Christ has anything to dread at the day of judgment. We thank you that you've delivered us from that dread by having united us to Christ and his righteousness. We thank you that in him we've already passed out of judgment into eternal life so that we'll never experience the condemnation of our sin. God, we pray that you would help us 
to put all of our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to prepare our minds for action in this life and uh, to be sober in spirit, to live as those who have eyes looking forward to the arrival of your Son. God, we pray for those that we know who are lost and who are without Christ and are perishing without him. We pray that you would help us to be urgent uh, in attempting to lead them to a knowledge of the Savior. Pray that you would bless the preaching of the gospel that takes place from our mouths as your people in all the different contexts in which you've placed us, that we might see its power manifested in the salvation of souls. We pray this trusting that you hear us because of the merits of Christ. Amen.